Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 51. Jesus saith unto them, Have ye understood all these things? They say unto him, Yea, Lord. Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence, and when he was come unto his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished, and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brother James, and Joseph, and and Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And when they were offended in him, but Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonderful chapter 13 of Matthew, which we've spent a number of weeks in, and we thank you, Lord, for the study of these parables that uh, we've been able to have. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, we can come to this close of this chapter this morning and yet see many more great and wonderful truths that uh, can be an encouragement to us. And we pray, Lord, as we open the word, that your spirit will teach us will bless the word in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, my introduction this morning is my first point. So, number one, the distinction of belief. The distinction of belief. As we have noted, the kingdom is not some vague notion that floats in the clouds. The kingdom is about Christ's rule over all things, but particularly his gracious rule over kingdom citizens, those that have believed him. And the more we know as kingdom citizens, the more we understand God's truth, and then the more responsibility we have to do something with that truth. I want you to notice Christ describes it using an analogy of a scribe as a disciple of Christ. Look again at verse 52. Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. The distinction of belief is first of all seen in treasury understanding. Treasury understand or treasure understanding. The first responsibility is to see the favor of God has given to us a grasp of the gospel and to understand kingdom truth. Treasure such understanding as a gift of God. We need to see it as one of his, as as one that has a stewardship over his household and who knows the treasures that belong to him. Now, you all have treasures. I know you do. Some of them are probably more treasures than you should have. Some of your treasures are junk, but they're still treasures to you. 
And as he describes it here, there are some things new and some things old, right? You've got some old things, but you've got some relatively new things. So what does he imply when he's talking about a treasure of things new and old? Well, let's keep in mind the context. The context, once again, that Jesus gave the the parables after encounters that he had with the religious leaders among the Jews. They had what we would term an Old Testament truth. Yet they failed to truly see what the Old Testament taught. They failed to make the connections given in the book of books of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets that explain the details of the Messiah and his kingdom rule. And so Jesus is explaining the old by the new. The religious leaders thought the kingdom is limited to Israel. They had a very restrictive view of God's covenantal love and mercy. They also thought the kingdom of the kingdom in political terms. Jesus Christ's parables shattered those crusty misunderstandings of the Old Testament. So what are we to treasure? We are to see that God has given us treasure in both the teachings of the New Testament and the Old Testament. And that's why this is a Bible preaching church. This is not a New Testament preaching church. This is a Bible preaching church. We preach the Old Testament and the New. We go through the scriptures verse by verse so we might understand and treasure things found new and old. And that's why we must be diligent in the reading of the Bible so that we might see the broad scope of treasure that belongs to us as kingdom citizens. The distinction of belief is seen in treasure understanding, but also treasure dispersion. Treasure dispersion. The scribes here that he's spoken of were the teachers of the law in ancient Israel. Jesus uses the scribe as a reference to the new scribes or the disciples in every age. And here's the point that Christ lays before us in terms of our responsibility as kingdom citizens. You have been given a treasure in understanding the scripture, not simply just to soak it up, but to bring it out clearly. You will need to disperse that treasure that you have. Disperse it. Give it out. Spurgeon put it clearly, you will seldom learn much to your own profit unless you are diligent in imparting knowledge and edifying one another, for it is in the distribution to the rest of the brotherhood of the good things which God hath given you that shall you shall enjoy the blessing of the Lord that which maketh rich. Never keep a truth to yourself, my brother. Hast thou found honey? there are other mouths that fain would know its flavor. Don't keep it to yourselves. You have a treasure. Disperse the treasure wherever God plants you. Your fellow believers need that treasure. Disperse it. Those without understanding of Christ and the gospel desperately need the treasure. Disperse it. 
It is not simply an option, but it is our responsibility to disperse the treasure of God's truth from the whole of Scripture to profit the whole man with the whole gospel. Now, popular culture seeks to strip Jesus Christ of his offensive elements. It's not that culture denies that Jesus ever existed. That would be historically ridiculous. And since culture has to live with what we some would call Jesus talk, then it has to tone him down, has to make him into a more likable, one-of-the-boys sort of religious figure. He's become the inspiration for weight loss. He's become the inspiration for self-help therapy. He's championed as a role model for helping the disadvantaged. Uh, He's been shaped into a capable CEO that can help business people achieve their corporate goals. The Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, even the Muslims and the Buddhists and the Hindus claim Jesus, but they deny the biblical teaching concerning his nature and redemptive work. Rationalists will admire him from afar, but keep their distance from the realities of sin and salvation and judgment that Christ declared. Theologians like those from the Jesus seminar strip or Jesus seminar deny most of what Christ taught as being authentic, choosing instead only that he was a ordinary religious figure that has no divine nature or no miraculous power, but only speaks of love. Well, in the midst of all the culturally sensitive portraits of Christ is at best an overlooking of the declarations of Scripture concerning his person and his work, if not a blatant denial. His nature as God and the mediatorial office of Redeemer fail to receive attention. The purpose of his miracles as testimonies affirming that he was the Messiah, they get twisted into Just random acts of kindness. The radical nature of his call to discipleship as obedient kingdom citizens is ignored. Give the world a politically correct, sensitive, lovey-dovey, soft and harmless Jesus and you'll find plenty of admirers. But you know, you declare the Christ of the scripture... And you see how unbelief defiantly raises its head. I think that problem probably hits much closer to home than we think sometimes. There are plenty of folks that will gladly take a Jesus without the cross and without lordship. And you may even work with them. You may go to school with them. You may cross paths with them throughout every day of the week. They probably listen to some preachers tell them of a culturally sensitive Jesus or they've become so overly familiar with religious talk that they have developed their own version of Jesus Christ. And it's not the one of the Holy Scriptures. When you attempt to witness to them of Christ, they give you the brush off. They claim, oh, uh, we already believe. We already know enough about him. And their talk hides their unbelief. And when the real Christ is revealed, it's impossible to remain neutral. Either we believe and follow him, 
or we convince ourselves he's really not what Scripture records, and so we're off the hook. Or we might just outright deny him and openly reject the gospel. Either belief or unbelief surfaces when Jesus Christ is revealed. But unbelief can be deceitful. And so we want to look at how unbelief surfaces even when Christ is clearly taught. Notice, first of all, when Christ is revealed, the destruction of unbelief. The destruction of unbelief. Look again at verse 54. About in the middle of the verse, it says, Insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brother James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? The parables took place somewhere around the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum. Nazareth was Christ's hometown. is about 20 miles away, due west of the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee. And yet the talk about him flooded the Galilean region and beyond so that people in Nazareth were quite aware of the claims and the works of Jesus Christ. His return to Nazareth to teach in the synagogue was probably the second time or the last trip home when, that we find recorded in the New Testament. On the first one, Jesus read from Isaiah's prophecy concerning the Messiah, declaring, this day is scripture fulfilled in your ears. And at first, uh, we spoke of, uh, uh, they spoke well of him, but the reality of his messianic, uh, messianic uh, uh, claims began to sink in. So they sought to throw him off the cliff which the uh, city was built on. Find that in Luke chapter 4. But after this, he settled in Capernaum, but made at least one more trip back to Nazareth, and that's the setting here of this text. And with the reports about Jesus Christ continuing to circulate, Christ, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch as they were astonished. And this indicates that he may have taught numerous times during that stay in Nazareth. And our text is the culmination. And what follows is a series of questions related to their understanding and their belief concerning Jesus Christ. And it proves to be quite revealing in helping us to understand the anatomy of unbelief. What it looks like from the inside out. Now, I'm not at all suggesting that we consider this text uh, that questions about Christ and Christian faith are wrong. You know, if one is inquiring the meaning of Scripture and seeking to understand the truth of Jesus Christ, then questions are appropriate. And by all means, we need to ask questions and we need to encourage others to ask questions. We're even told to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. But the people of Nazareth were not pursuing truth. Their questions revealed skepticism that sought to disprove the truth of Christ. Their questions were not moving them toward grasping truth, but providing a mental rationale for rejecting what was very clear. 
And unbelief still acts the same way today. Our investigation into unbelief, I believe, can help us with three particular issues. First, it helps us in our witnessing of Christ and the gospel to understand the difference between questions that are honest and those that are trying to divide. Secondly, perhaps there are some among us here this morning who are still unbelieving, and you've prided yourself in the rationale of unbelief. And I hope that our study this morning will uproot your pride and humble you before Christ. But also we study unbelief to come face to face again with the necessity of God's grace to overcome our excuses and the skeptical mind so that we might believe in Christ and be saved. Notice, first of all, questions concerning the authority of Christ. Questions concerning the authority. The first question, whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? What they're aiming for was to question the source of Jesus' words and miracles. By that they meant that it was not of divine origin. In their minds, it could not have been. It's not that they denied that the miracles took place through Christ or he said things that baffled the religious leaders of that day, nor did they deny the character of Christ and how it showed godly qualities. Instead, they were repulsed that this boy from their village could come back and teach the kind of things that flew in the face of what they professed to believe. Quite similar to the Pharisees, they witnessed Jesus delivering and healing the blind and the dumb, and they could not bring themselves to say, he has to be of God. The evidence is too clear. Instead, where did he get the authority to speak all these clever sayings and to perform all these notable miracles? How dare Jesus claim to speak for God? Now, the questions might be phrased a little differently in our day. They might be like this. Who gave Jesus or the Bible the authority to question me or condemn me just because I don't follow Jesus Christ? You know, secular uh, men have asked such questions over and over. Its roots are found in the denial of external authority instead of thinking that every person is his own authority. Some are not as blatant about this as the anarchists of our day that rail against any kind of authority, whether it's at home or in the public square. For the most part, they're going, uh, not going to wage war against the government or anything like that. But they'll recoil at anyone that questions their right to sin, their right to sin at will or to follow whatever kind of lifestyle they desire. We hear this frequently among the pro-abortionists and the pro-homosexual groups that laugh at anyone who attempts to bring God's word into the argument as authoritative. The reason such people question authority is because they love their sin more than they love God. Another question goes like this. What right does Jesus have to make demands upon me? Biblical call to repentance, the necessity of faith in Christ, the command to follow Jesus as obedient disciples is met with shock. What right does Jesus have to make demands of me? Because so many do not recognize the authority of God's word and the authority of God, they gave us 
the God that gave us this word, they can easily dismiss the demands found in it. When pressing the demands of the gospel, there is often a strong reaction. Being a Christian is not equivalent with making a decision and then living however you desire. Just as Jesus explained in the parables that we read here and studied in Matthew chapter 13. Some found great offense at the gospel's call for ongoing obedience as genuine disciples of Christ. They wanted to be able to call themselves Christians without discipleship. The very base of the reaction was the attitude that I'll go along with Jesus and I'll go along with the gospel as long as it fits into my desires, into my plans, into my lifestyle. But don't tell me that I must do anything as a Christian. Yet another question we might hear is like this. Why do Jesus Christ and all his followers think that his views of God are the only right views? This is especially current with the air of political correctness that seems to be driving our culture today. Just make a public stand that the only way to God is through Christ and that the only true God is the God of the Scripture and watch the fur begin to fly. When Paul dealt with the seculars of Athens, he did not tell them that God is Zeus or any lesser deity. Instead, he told them that the unknown God they memorialized in the monument is God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth. He fully declared that God calls all men to repentance and faith in his son, whom appointed was appointed the judge of the world in righteousness. So there is questions concerning the authority of Christ. Secondly, there are questions concerning the person of Christ. The person of Christ. As the questions continued here in our text, we find the people of Nazareth also questioning the person of Christ and his nature and being. Note them in verses 55 and 56. Jesus Christ claimed more than just manhood. He took up the mantle of the Messiah. He exercised divine power in his miracles. He spoke with absolute authority, so much so that he pronounced judgment and declared that rejecting the Holy Spirit's witness of him was blasphemy against God. He claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. He declared that he was greater than Jonah and Solomon. He clarified the divine law. He spoke as a king of God's kingdom. But Jesus Christ grew up in this little lowly town of Nazareth. And that's what this crowd was had a problem with. How can one that's just a carpenter's son and whose mother and siblings right here, how could he be anything so great? How could anything so great come from Spooner, Wisconsin? <laughs> that's kind of the, the idea, you know, just a little old town here. It was an inconspicuous town. It had no trade routes, no governmental palaces or anything of distinction. Nathaniel expressed the disdain that many city dwellers felt toward Nazareth. Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? And so they considered that since it was one of their own of Nazareth and he had no prominent family, he could not possibly but be what he claimed to be. How could he be anything more than a lowly peasant in an obscure town? 
and questions about the person of Christ began early. John opens the gospel, his gospel, by declaring Jesus Christ to be the God, God the Creator. Luke often spoke of Jesus as the Son of God. Matthew and Mark tell us about the transfiguration and the divine uh, uh, approbation uh, concerning Christ as his as God's Son. Paul especially deals with Christ's nature in Colossians. He says all things were created by him and for him. Hebrews uh, explains who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. In other words, to have been Jesus Christ was to see God in the flesh who exactly corresponds to the revelation of God in his being and who demonstrates his omnipotence in sustaining the world. John had to deal with those who likened Jesus to some kind of phantom spirit, explain that he is God come in the flesh. And church history is, is full with, of those denying the person of Jesus Christ. Denials of Christ's nature have continued through the centuries and they shall continue until the day when every enemy is under his feet and when the whole cosmos declares Jesus Christ alone to be the Lord. And then there are questions about the ministry of Christ. The ministry of Christ. After questioning Christ's authority and his person, the people of Nazareth had just one exasperating question. Whence then hath this man all these things? In other words, if his authority did not come from God, which is implied in the first question, and he was just an ordinary villager from Nazareth without any special heritage qualities implied in the next three questions, then how did he come up with all these things? How can he speak or claim to speak for God and tell people to follow him as the way to God? What right does he have to speak of God's kingdom and his rule of that kingdom? To deny the authority of Christ generally comes because one denies the nature of God and man, and that inevitably means a denial of his saving offices as prophet, priest, and king. And this is why I believe it's vital that we even labor in our witnessing to establish the nature of God. And how he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. You know, if a person stumbles over Christ's person and authority as God, then he really will not be interested in believing Christ as his Redeemer and Lord. You know, to tell someone, Jesus died for you, means nothing if Jesus Christ is not what he claims to be. If he is not the creator who became a man so he could mediate the way to God for us. <clears throat> and that's what unbelief looks like from the inside out. It questions Christ's authority, his divine and human nature in one person, and ultimately questions the need of ineffective and ineffectiveness of his uh, and the effectiveness of his death on the cross. The destruction of unbelief. Secondly, we see the defiance of unbelief, unbelief, the defiance. We see this in verse 57 and 58. And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Unbelief comes with an attitude as well. 
We must never think of unbelief as just some sterile, passive condition of mind. Someone that doesn't even, you know, doesn't even think about it. Because our text says, and they were offended in him. The word offended expresses the opposite of believing. It means they stumbled over him. They stumbled over the revelation concerning Christ and his person and work. And that does not leave a person neutral. This defiance, first of all, is an active attitude. An active attitude. There's a real contrast in this passage in the parables just presented. The parables zero in on the understanding of the gospel of the kingdom. And it's only as a person understands that they will truly receive the word of the gospel, they'll begin to bear fruit as a true kingdom citizen. Even the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value express the reality that men finding themselves understood what they had found so that they sold all they had to obtain that which they valued most. But not so with the people of Nazareth. The people of Nazareth displayed arrogance toward Christ by the questions they asked, and they attempted to put him in his place just as another village boy from their town. It was the same active attitude we've seen in the Pharisees and the religious leaders throughout our study of this gospel. And even though they acknowledged the wisdom and the miraculous works of Christ, they loved their sin and they loved their traditions more than they loved truth. And so they took offense at him. He was the problem in their thinking. That's why they took offense. At least we can say their unbelief was on the table. They were not like the fair-weathered followers in the masses that followed Jesus as long as they received bread and fish, but left him abruptly when he pressed them with the demands of the gospel. But both are lost. Both stand condemned before God. But the active attitude of unbelief lets us know where they stand when, they dis- when we discuss the gospel. And it's not our persuasive words that are going to crack the hard shell of that kind of a heart. Crossing paths with an active attitude of unbelief is the call to prayer. Knowing that we are unable to do what God alone can accomplish through his mighty power. Some among among us came right out of that mold, but now we rejoice in Christ as our Lord. It's not only an active attitude, but it's a deliberate attitude. Deliberate. What I hope that we can see is the unbelief is never just a passive attitude. It's an audacious, deliberate attitude. Rejection of the revelation of Christ. One would expect these home folks to welcome Jesus back in and be proud that one of their own had granted recognition in Israel. They may be true in some areas, but in this case, the Lord says, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And the irony here suggest what took place even though there were no doubts about the remarkable things that Jesus taught and the fact that he performed tremendous miracles his hometown chose to dishonor him maybe some were jealous others thought maybe he lacked the family notoriety or to be worthy of honor 
But I wonder, how is Christ dishonored in our day? You know, when someone is under the teaching of the gospel and they pay no attention, Christ is dishonored. When the call to respond to faith to the gospel message is made and yet it's ignored, Christ is dishonored. When love for the things of the world hold greater affection than love for Christ and the gospel, Christ is dishonored. When we choose to satisfy our own desires and whims rather than giving ourselves in obedience to Christ, then Christ is dishonored. Are you like the people of Nazareth this morning who dishonored Christ? Or do you seek in all things to honor, to glorify him? One of the evidences of unbelief is this dishonor. The other evidence of belief is trust. So we've seen the distinction of belief, the destruction of unbelief, the defiance of unbelief. Notice the devastation of unbelief. The devastation of unbelief. A person living in unbelief does not realize what it does to him. It's almost like a drunken man that's satisfied with his drunkenness while living in denial of any problem to him or those around him. My drinking doesn't bother anybody. Well, that's the same thing as we find here. All of us who live in unbelief Think, well, I'm not bothering anybody else. It's just me. All of us do live in unbelief until we come to faith in Christ. But the deeper the problem that we have observed in this text is determined unbelief. This is determined unbelief. The kind of mind that refuses to give consideration to the gospel. Notice it deceives the senses. It deceives the senses. When this happens, the senses are deceived by unbelief. The person's affections are centered on things that dishonor Christ. They find such things to be satisfying. And we see in our text, when in spite of all the people that understood and saw concerning Jesus Christ, they set up every barrier they could to believing. They went so far as to disbelieve, which is an implication of, and they took offense at him. And the danger of such effects. Unbelief desensitizes a person to the truth. He so focuses on his own pleasure. He cannot see the wretchedness of his sin. He cannot feel the reality that his life is inching closer to judgment. Or that God the creator is also the God God the judge. And so he laughs at Christianity. And those that take the gospel seriously. Which he chooses to disbelief but it not only deceives the sentence the senses it darkens the understanding matthew records the sad epitaph here and he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief and the point is not that they missed out on some really cool things or that they missed out on a better health or comfort. But miracles were a testimony to the reality of Christ as a Messiah. 
Miracles were tools of proclamation to point people to Christ as their Redeemer. It was not that Christ was powerless to do the miracles since we find him doing miracles in settings where people lacked faith, but the point of the miracles would have fallen on darkened minds. They had so determined their minds against Christ that it was pointless for him to show the favor and kindness of the miracles among them. They missed out on seeing and experiencing Christ's acts of graciousness. But more importantly, they missed out on more light that explained Christ. And that kind of determined unbelief shuts the mind of God's light that brings life. Now we need to beware of the subtlety of unbelief. Unbelief can creep into our lives by just denying the truth concerning Christ and the gospel. The people of Nazareth went from astonishment to skeptical questioning to taking offense, and they ended up with nothing. May God grant that we might see and we might hear and believe and follow Christ the Lord. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and your graciousness. There may be someone here this morning who's still in that area of active attitude and determined deliberate attitude of unbelief. Maybe they're religious, but they're still lost. And we pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God will touch their hearts this morning. And then, Lord, as we've seen how Unbelief can work and we perhaps even recognize it because of the questions and the attitudes that we've faced in our own lives with those that we've tried to witness to, those we've tried to win to Christ. Lord, we pray that we'll not be discouraged. But Lord, help us to continue to be faithful to give forth the word of God. Help us this morning to have a love for the word. Help us to desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching, the teaching of God's word, the faithful reading and studying of it day by day. And Lord, Even give us opportunities to be a help and an encouragement to others who are weak in the faith. To disciple them. To help them to grow and be strengthened in their faith. Lord, uh, we pray that our desire would be completely to surrender our lives to you in everything that we do and say. We pray, Lord, that we're not just religious people. We pray we're not just uh, 
Sunday morning Christians. But help us to be seven days, 24 hours a day believers in what you've done for us and what you can do for others. And help us to be faithful in our witness. Help us to be faithful in our living that others may see Jesus Christ in our lives. Thank you again for this message this morning. We pray, Lord, you'll touch our hearts and speak to us where there are needs. We pray in Jesus' name.